So hey, my name is Pastor Milo. It's good to have you. As I said earlier, uh, it's good to be here together with you. It is 2020. Uh, it's a, becoming a hashtag in and of itself of, oh, it's just 2020, meaning that if it could go wrong, it will. So if it has to do with uh, the hurricanes or the fires or the politics or the virus, like 2020 is a difficult time that we're all living in. But we want to be careful with that because you could say, uh, many of you, you could say, well, would it be better for us to have born uh, and lived in 1920? That was the roaring 20s. There was a lot of good things about that, that time frame, but there were some things that weren't so good. So maybe we should be born uh, in the 1820s. I've always been a Western fan, so maybe I would live in the wild, wild west, and that would be good. But, you know, there was a few things that weren't so great about, you know, the war between the North and the South, and, you know, the fact that you walk down Main Street, you might be shot at high noon. Like, those are not good things. Uh, to be so, so what we have to do is be careful with that to assume that it's just better uh, because it's 2020 that we are able to deal with or we're smart enough to deal with the problems that we have now uh, different than uh, previous generations. Uh, C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. The idea that we look back at other generations or other times and assume that because we are more modern or more intelligent than them, uh, that we are better off just because we are further along than they are. Uh, chronological snobbery feels that things are truer because they are newer. Truer because they are newer. That's the idea of chronological snobbery. And he, C.S. Lewis, thought it was both irrational and naive uh, to think this way. Why would he think that? Well, certainly the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, wrote in Ecclesiastes, he said, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which is said, oh, see, this is new. It has been already in all the ages before us. So we don't want to become chronological snobs. I don't want to become irrational or naive either. So C.S. Lewis, what his prescription to this was, he said, every third book that you read, make sure it comes from a different century than what you are in. That was his uh, philosophy of how to go about that. I've heard it said a different way. It says, I only read dead people. Have you ever heard someone say that? I only want to read uh, what someone who has lived a life and be able to demonstrate that they've lived uh, a godly life, uh, particularly if you're reading a theolo theological treatise or something like that. You want to make sure that they knew what they were talking about. So I was reading John Piper this week, who is not dead, to be clear. I want to make sure that I didn't scare anyone with that. He's alive and well. But he quoted someone who is dead, and he talked about the local church. And it caught my attention, and maybe it'll catch your attention as well. He was talking about church membership. He said, membership, therefore, involves a personal obligation to promote the objects of the body of Christ as expressed in the covenant. The objects are three. One, the social united worship of God. Two, the sanctification of its own members. And three, the perpetuation and diffusion of the gospel. Well, that's language I don't normally use, but check out how he explains himself. The church, that's comprehensive in its scope, does this. It looks upward to God, inward to the process of sanctification of its own members, and then outward to the needs of a lost world. To neglect any one of these grand objects of its organization imperils its whole design. Isn't that interesting? Uh, that is from Hezekiah Harvey, born in England in 1821. 
So the ideas that we bring to you, I just shared with you earlier, uh, if you're on our website, if you're watching from home, you, you're going to see these three ideas that we talk about often, that three relationships matter, that we want you to find your place upward in Christ, inward in the church, and outward in the community. But this is not new. We just sang a new song, or a newer song, I meaning at least it wasn't written this weekend. It was at least written within the last five to ten years with these lines. Savior, worthy of honor and glory, awesome and great is your name. You overcame, the words that we just sung. But those are not new words. Uh, some of you who are a little bit older might recognize it better in the hymn from 1757. I know that you're not from 1757. I didn't mean to say that. Uh, but you are familiar with this hymn, uh, Come Thou Almighty King, right? And the last line, you reign victorious. You are the ancient of days. All pointing back to this verse, John 16, where Jesus says, Have hope, for I have overcome the world. These ideas are not new. The problems are not new. In fact, if you go all the way back, this is a passage that we talked about last week. Uh, this hymn, this song that was sung, the Song of Moses from 1450 BC, the Song of Moses starts out with the line, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed and he will be exalted. Uh, our God is an awesome God. And so using that verse as a launching point, I want to uh, call our sermon this morning, or title the sermon, Trading Temptation for Triumph. We are in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and we will see uh, a fairly familiar passage. We'll see Jesus tempted in the wilderness. But we also want you to see that Jesus has overcome, and as uh, the Song of Moses says, He is triumphant over that. And so if the wisdom literature would teach us that there is nothing new, then why the author of, of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the, the Matthew the tax collector, we believe, who, who wrote this about uh, 60 or 70 years A.D., so that he was able to document before he passed away what had happened in the life of Jesus, why did he open up his book with a chronologic, chronological uh, record of Matthew's record of Jesus? And then he starts with, uh, in chapter 1 with the birth of a new baby, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 2, he talks about a new star in the sky. In Matthew chapter 2, he talks about the wise men coming to see the new king that had been born there in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 3, we hear John the Baptist calling out, crying out. He says, there is a new kingdom. The kingdom of God is near. Pay attention. So in Matthew chapter 4 is where we are today. You can get there in your Bibles. I'm in a New International Version. Matthew chapter 4. There is something new that is going to happen here. There is something unique that is going to happen. In these verses that we're going to read in just a moment, something new is going to happen where at the end of the chapter, the devil takes off running. So what is it? Is it really something new or is it what God has been up to all Along. Would you stand with us? I'm just going to read for you Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 through 11, just to get the whole scope of where we're going here this morning. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and fled, and the angels came and attended him. Lord, we pray this morning as we read this passage, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that there would be lessons that we can learn here uh, when it comes to doing battle with the enemy. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to walk away with something, some tools, Lord, uh, that we can use in our everyday lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So when we left last week, we saw Moses. Moses was there in the desert. He had just crossed over the Red Sea. He was on the far side of the Red Sea. And we, we joked, he said, he had all of the Israelites. They were in the back of the station wagon. He said, three to five million Israelites in the back of the station wagon. He had the nose pointed into the desert. And here we go. It should be exciting. And so what we have here, very similarly, the wilderness awaits Jesus as well. The wilderness awaits. Verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. (laughs) The wilderness awaits. You see, just like Moses was led into the wilderness, if you remember, there was a cloud of fire at night and a a cloud during the day that would carry them and drive them into the wilderness, that, that God was literally leading them out into the wilderness. In the same way, it says here, that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, where in the wilderness he would be what? He would be tempted by the devil. Now, if you are a first century reader, you are reading this, and the fact that the devil is named and the person or the personality of the devil was there waiting for him in the wilderness, it caught their attention. Because this had not, the devil, Satan, had not been named in this way directly, or that that the personification of him, that, that Jesus was going to do battle with him there in the wilderness. Now, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. Now, we as Baptists, we like, we like to fly right across this. This isn't something that we think about or talk about a whole lot. We need to be better at this, understand this, that he was preparing himself for the spiritual warfare by which he was going to do. We as Baptists, we love to gather people together. Uh, COVID has been a change for us because we haven't had our potluck meals. We haven't had our coffee before the service. We haven't had our donuts before the service. And all of those different ways that we gather together, uh, preparing ourselves for worship, we say. But actually, what we see in Scripture is that Jesus prepared prepares himself by fasting, by focusing himself for what he was about to go through. And it's not unique to Jesus either. Elijah the prophet does the same thing. He spends 40 days where he is fasting and he is clearing everything from his mind, clearing everything physically, so he is prepared for what God is going to teach him. We see the same thing with Moses. Moses does the same thing at Mount Sinai. He has 40 days where he prepares himself for what God was going to teach him, the law that he would give him there, uh, most famously, of course, the Ten Commandments. All representative of Israel who was in 40 years of wandering about in the desert. 
You see, Jesus was led into the wilderness so that he and the readers of that day would be able to see that he was identifying himself with Israel. See, the wilderness was waiting for him. The temptation was going to be there. He had come, however, to fulfill. Uh, He had come to fulfill all of the shortcomings of Israel. He had come to fulfill all the shortcomings of mankind. All the times that Israel had turned away from God, Jesus would prove that he would turn towards God. All of the times that you and I turn ourselves away from God, we need to realize that Jesus has fought that battle already. When John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, he says, I am here. I I, I have to be baptized by you so that I may fulfill all righteousness. So the enemy that he faces there, in many of your Bibles, the the header that it has here in the Bible, says the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The wilderness awaits, and he is going out into the wilderness. So let's talk about the temptations that he would face. The tempter there. Let's just put it all out on the table. These are, or this is, the oldest trick in the book. Or these are the oldest tricks in the book. The book. What do I mean? Well, if you go in your book, you turn all the way to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, you will see the very same trick. You will see the tempter doing the same thing. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, this should sound familiar to you. When the women saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This is the oldest trick in the book. This is the oldest trick in the book. Now, now dads, we are terrible about telling old and terrible jokes. So here's one of the oldest jokes possible, but I got my daughter with it. I flew out of town for for work. I came back in. Uh, I I see her. I kind of came into a room where she didn't realize that I was going to be there. She said, Dad, Dad, you, you, when did you get here? When did you fly? And I said, well, I just flew in a few minutes ago, and boy, are my arms tired. And it was the first time she had ever heard that joke. And she laughed and laughed and laughed, and she went around and told all of her friends, oh, my dad just got in, and she said his arms are so tired. And they all looked at her and said, you're an idiot. So that's the oldest joke in the book. I've heard that one before, right? It's, it's wasted. And this old trick that we're going to see here, it's the oldest trick in the book. The devil, who is this tempter, the devil who is an author of confusion, he's used these jokes before. <laughs> Not the jokes. He's used these tricks before. And here are the basics of the trick. It comes like this. Uh, either one, make them hungry. Two, get them greedy. Or three, pump up the power. Meaning, meaning these are the three things, these are the tricks that are being used. Look at this verse. She said, she looked at the tree. It was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. And it was desirable for gaining wisdom. These are the oldest tricks we see in Scripture. And they're the very same tricks that we see Satan using with Jesus. Let's talk about the devil for a moment. Let's talk about Satan, the great tempter. We need to understand who he is, where he comes. We see him as a serpent or a snake in the book of Genesis. He's being articulated in that way. He's a a creature of darkness. He's he's in some way at battle with God. He's evil. This this idea of a snake, 
uh, or a serpent. It comes from actually, uh, we believe, as Scripture teaches us, that he is Lucifer who has been taken from heaven. He's a fallen angel from heaven, but a particular angel, one of the seraphim who was around the very throne room in the glory of God, who has features that are very snake-like, but with wings and with a very beautiful uh, complexion, if you will. And then now he has been thrown to earth. He is a fallen angel on earth. And then we see him as this snake or this serpent who is now fallen. And even in the garden we find that he is going to have to move around with his belly on the ground. He is the greatest con man of all time. Meaning that he is not a creator in and of himself at all. But he is the author of confusion. Taking what God has created and trying to break it down or confuse you. Or to throw you and I off as to what that is. And he has done that through all of the Old Testament with the Israelites. And we see it happen again and again and again. It's the oldest trick in the book. But secondly, you need to know this. Here's the honest truth about sin. Here's the honest truth about sin. Romans 5:12 articulates it perfectly. Just as sin entered through the excuse me, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. This is the truth about sin. The truth about sin is is that even if we know the playbook, we cannot beat sin. Just like sin came through one man, Adam, sin would ripple itself through all of human, humanity, all of mankind, continuously. The oldest trick in the book, my mom has one of the oldest tricks in the book. If you call her cell phone, uh, she picks up the phone and she says, hello, hello. And you say, hi, how's it going? And she says, hello, hello. And then she goes, ha, ha, I'm not really here, leave me a message. And you want to scream. And you know that that trick is there. She's been doing that for 20 years. It's been on her answering machine forever. But I fall for it every time. As sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, death came to all people because all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, just like sin came through one man, we know that sin came through Adam and Eve. And just a page over, we see Cain and Abel and sin has come in. And God warns him. He says, the devil is lurking at the door. Do not fall into sin. Do not fall into this temptation. But Cain does. And what does he do? We go from the sin of eating a fruit to the next generation. He's murdering his brother. The honest truth about sin is that there is no human on earth, never has been, never will be, that has the power to fight these temptations. Abraham and Lot. There's the land that lies before him, and he sees, Lot sees the beautiful land and how wonderful it would be to, to have his crops there. What he is not thinking about, what he doesn't realize is that's where Sodom and Gomorrah is. It would be the undoing of his family, of his wife, of all that he loves would come apart there because of the greed of wanting that. David and Bathsheba uh, the greed, the, the power struggle. They says, I can have all things whenever I want, and so Bathsheba can be mine, and so he sleeps with her in his own sin. If, if you don't think that the man after God's own heart, if he wasn't strong enough, to, why do you think that you're strong enough? The honest truth about sin is that all have sinned. Moses is there with the Israelites. He's on the far side of the Red Sea. He has seen God do tremendous things. 
and it'll only take three days. It'll only take three days for them to fall into temptation and fall into sin. So if we come back to today's passage, we need to learn something. There are three lessons we learn, and there's three battles that are fought here, and they, that Matthew just lays them out in a very, very logical manner. So you can see one after another after another. So here's the first way. The only way to do battle, here's battle number one. So the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is from Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. Now, the tempter has come and he says, if you are the Son of God, our English translations put it that way, a, a better translation would say, since you are the Son of God. You see, the devil knows that he is the Son of God. This is not a question. He's not questioning if you are, then do something. No, he's saying, since you are, then you should respond. Why would he say that? Well, in Matthew's account, we just got the account of, of him being baptized, being brought up out of the water, and then this voice from heaven, and the Holy Spirit ascending on another voice from heaven says, this is my son. And immediately the next verse says, if you are the son of God. So he's challenging him right here from the start. In Luke's account, he takes a pause. He, he, he stops for a second and he goes through the genealogy of Christ. Where in Matthew, we get the genealogy from the Old Testament coming to the New. Uh, from Luke, we actually get the genealogy going the other way, from Jesus backwards. And what do we get? He is the son of Joseph. And he skips all the way back, goes all the way back, and he gets, he is the son of Adam. He is the son of God. And then you get this question. If you are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. The only way to do battle, we need to understand, the only way to do battle is to quote Scripture. It is written. That's what you'll see Jesus do each time here. So what is he quoting? I'll read it to you. I, we don't have it on the slides intentionally, really, so you can just kind of get the background. Because this is what's happening with Moses uh, there in the wilderness. Uh, these passages are coming from Deuteronomy chapter 8 first and then chapter 6. And so actually, Deuteronomy is structured in a certain way, but actually the way that Jesus responds is he goes in a very logical manner. And when he talks uh, with the devil, when he fights with the devil, the way that it's argued out so that you can see that he is the fulfillment of all the ways that Israel failed. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, it says, Remember how the Lord your God led you into the wilderness for these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. What was the purpose for them being there 40 years so they would know what's in their heart? He humbled you. He caused you to do what? Hunger and be fed with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known before. They called it manna, which the word means, what is it? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. When Jesus puts, excuse me, when Moses puts all the Israelites in the back of the station wagon and starts heading out into the desert, it only takes him three days to be tempted by the lack of water, by the lack of bread. What was the first thing that I told you that the devil will do? He will get him hungry. And there's a lot of different ways that he does that. But here, very specifically with the Israelites, they're hungry. Very specifically with Jesus, he's hungry. It's been 40 days. His, his belly hurts. He's hungry. And how do the Israelites respond to this temptation? Well, they respond by grumbling against God, by failing to trust in him, and turning on their leader, Moses. 
But what does Jesus do? Because you see, where Israel fails, Jesus fulfills. He responds by quoting Scripture. It is written, man will not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Punch number one. Let's go to battle number two. The only way to do battle is to quote Scripture. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, circle this, mark it. It is written, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The only way to go to battle is to quote scripture. And he is quoting scripture here from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're in verse 16. Here's what it says. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. So he's getting very specific at the time where they did it. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and the decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take over the good land, that promised land that the Lord promised you on an oath to your ancestors, your forefathers, driving out all of your enemies before you just as the Lord said that he would. And so when he's quoting that scripture, he's saying don't put the Lord to the test because there in the Old Testament, there the Israelites on the far side of the Red Sea, they are tempted by the lack of provisions. They're looking around and they're saying there's not enough here. They are tempted to return back to Egypt. And they had a false sense of what Egypt was. They started talking about how good it was there, how wonderful it was for them to be in 400 years of oppression. They said those really were, those were the good old days, which is foolishness. And the reality was, is their needs were being provided. There was manna there for them. There was water there for them that was pouring out of the rock, and they wanted more. Because what did I tell you? Get them hungry. Make them greedy. You see, the devil will quote Scripture, too. When he quotes scripture here, he says, he will command his angels concerning you. They'll lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's standing there in the holy city, Jerusalem, at the temple. He's at the top of the temple. We believe that this is Herod's temple. So Herod had expanded and built the temple. So now this is somewhere between five and eight stories off of the ground. He's got him up there in the temple looking out at the beauty of it all. And he says, if you jump, then guess what? then the the angels will have to catch you. Don't you want to see everybody bow down to you? Don't you want to see, don't you want more people gathering around you than you have right now? How greedy are you is the question he's asking. But see, when the devil is an author of confusion, so when he's quoting scripture, he's not opening up the whole piece of scripture. Because there in Psalms chapter 91, the scripture that it's actually coming from, it begins, it says, when you make the most high your dwelling, She says, do you want to dwell here on the temple? Do you want to demonstrate your strength here at the temple? And he is missing the whole point. He says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. You see, for Israel, their freedom, their ability to be away from the oppression, that wasn't enough. They just wanted more. The food that was being provided for them, the manna that just dropped out of the sky every morning, that wasn't enough. They wanted more more. The water that had come out of the rock to make sure that they weren't thirsty anymore, that wasn't enough. They just wanted a little bit more. But where Israel fails, Jesus fulfills. Here's the third battle. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain 
He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. He says, all of this I will give to you if you will just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for circle it. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Some of you are teachers. Uh, some of you have used this technique before when you're teaching your class. Uh, if you've got a kid who's uh, disturbing the classroom, he's, he's, he's talking back, he's mouthing off. There are times that a teacher will, will say, hey, why don't you come up here and try to teach this class? And so hopefully the kid comes up front, he's up in front of everybody, or certainly in, in a mu- music uh, world, the, the conductor tells the kid to come up, why don't you come up and try to conduct? If you, and they just make an absolute fool of themselves in front of all of their peers, and they hang their head and walk back down and, and sit. And, and somehow, in doing it, now every once in a while it goes crazy and the kid just even takes things even worse. But the idea behind it is putting the kid in their place because you are not the authority in this room. Now what is happening right here is that the enemy, the devil, is saying, I'll put you in charge. You can be king for a day over my kingdom so that you can see how powerful you are not. And he says, I'm not going to take your bait. So I will never worship you. Why? For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Circle that. Highlight it. So you have no idea what you are talking about. See, Israel had been tempted to follow other gods. They'd been told, do not put other gods before me. I am the only one you are to worship. And you and I know that they broke that again and again and again. They fell into this temptation over and over and over the book of Judges is all about all the times that they, that they had every opportunity to be able to follow after God, and yet they collapsed. All the prophets, you see this continuing fragmentation of Israel, that they're no longer who they used to be, and that the enemy was going to come in and was going to tear them apart. Why? Because they kept putting other gods before the one and only God that they should be worshiping. And so even though the devil is trying to pump up the power and try to give, in this moment, Jesus more power, where Israel failed again and again and again, Jesus fulfilled what he needed to be. Why? Here's the last point. Because the Word of God, it's him. The Word of God is Jesus Christ. In verse 11 it says, Then the devil left him. He ran. The angels came and they attended to him. The Word of God, it's him. And as the band comes up this morning, we're going to sing a song, but we're going to sing praise and worship and glory to God. You see, the devil fled from him because he is the one. He is the only one. When John the Baptist sees him coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. John, as he opens up his book, he says, This is the Word of God. And he says uh, that, that the light has come to overcome and blast away the darkness. This is Jesus. And you're going to see from this moment on, I told you that something new had happened here, that Jesus had gone out into the wilderness and he had fought the enemy there. And you will see all that come after in the New Testament. That there is some strength in them. They're able actually to go to battle with the enemy because now they know that victory is theirs. Peter, after Jesus has ascended, uh, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's on a boat, he's fishing, and he looks on the shore and he sees Jesus there on the shore. And he says, it's him, it's the Christ. And he dives out of the water and swims to shore. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he writes these words. He says, resist the devil, stand firm. 
because he doesn't have any power over me anymore. Because I was there, I saw Jesus on the shore. I saw him with my own eyes. It's him. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. The Apostle Paul, he tells us in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, our feet shod with the gospel of peace. And what does he say to hold in your hands? What sword do you use? The word of the Lord. This is a man now who knows how to fight the enemy, how to make the devil run. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he writes in his gospel, he says, resist the devil, and what will he do? He will flee from you. John summarizes all of the attacks of the enemy. Should sound familiar to you. He said, don't be, don't be tempted because the great tempter, he does this, he gives you the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Remember all the way back in Genesis, they were hungry, the fruit looked good. It tasted good, it, it, it looked good, and it was gonna make them wise. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. John says, I got your playbook now, devil. I know what to do. I know how to go to war with you. And so what happens in Revelation 19 is we get to see the end game. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire and on his head there are many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped with blood and his name is the very word of God so when you leave this morning when you walk out those doors those double doors are open up and for many of you the wilderness awaits maybe it's 2020 and just the physical wilderness of all that we're going through this year but maybe there is a spiritual battle going on in your life that you're going to have to be willing to go through those doors and go to battle do you have the right tools The enemy, he's lurking, he's prowling in the night. How are you going to stand? How will you fight? Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. You see, we know these are the oldest tricks in the book. We know the honest truth about sin, all have sinned. We know the only way to do battle is to quote his word, to be able to come back every single time that says, it is written, devil. I have the word of God and it is Jesus Christ. And I know with his robe dipped in blood that he is victorious and he fights my battles. And before you know it, the devil's on the run. So this morning, I'm going to close in prayer. He has overcome. Light has overcome the darkness. But he actually gave us a template by which to be reminded by this again and again. He told the disciples, he said, and they said, teach us how to pray. He gave them a template. And so let's pray this together this morning. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, I pray this morning that that would be our heart's desire this morning. Lord, that there would be tools in our pocket this morning that we know that we can go to battle with the enemy because you are victorious, Lord. And thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever.